Hi, welcome to Scattered. We're a group of friends from the same church who are serving God in different countries and we're meeting online to chat through books of the Bible, chapter by chapter. We'd love you to join us. Hello everybody and welcome to Scattered. This week we are looking at Nehemiah 5 and 6. I am here with Jill and with Juliet. I am in Portugal, Juliet is in Thailand and Jill is still in sunny Manchester. So a couple of us have been traveling around. Uh, so we have been looking at chapters one to four so far. And um, Nehemiah, who was in exile in Persia, was so distraught by the reported state of Jerusalem that he mourns heavily, speaks to the king, and then he goes back to Jerusalem to start the rebuilding of the temple wall. And chapter three describes the work that went on and all the people involved. And then chapter four describes two waves of opposition towards the work. Firstly, it's words and ridicule, and then it um, progresses on to threats of violence. But the work continues alongside much prayer and watchfulness. So can that's where we're up to. Could somebody please summarize chapters five and six for me? Sure. So chapter five um, is slightly different in tone in that there's problems within Israel and they're really struggling um, financially. There's been a couple of things like a famine, um, which means coupled with all the fact that the building work is taking them away from their regular work. There's a lot of Israelites really struggling financially. But then the problem is that other Jews are taking advantage of them and charging high interest rates. And so um, they come to Nehemiah really disgruntled and upset about the way they're being treated, not by the nations around them, but by their own brothers. Um, So chapter five is Nehemiah dealing with that. And then um, he talks about his own way of life, which contrasts really well with that because he's generous. He doesn't take everything that's owed to him. Um, Yeah, so that's chapter five. And then we get to chapter six, which is more familiar territory to us by now. And we meet again our old friends, which is the wrong word, Sambalat, Tobiah and Geshem. And they are really relentlessly trying to distract Nehemiah from his focused building work. And so they use a variety of different strategies um, to try and stop the work. But Nehemiah is crazily consistent in knowing what he's there for and he will not be distracted so and then at the end of chapter six the wall is finished and so the building work is completed great thanks jill so what just going back again to chapter five verses one to one to six so what do you think is going on in verses one to five and why was nehemiah so angry in verse six so um in Chapter five, it begins with uh, the people crying out because suddenly they uh, are struggling to have food, to eat and to live, they say, and that they've sold all their houses and their vineyards and their lands so that they can actually buy food. Um, And not only that, that they've started borrowing money and selling their children even to become slaves. And so this is 
the people crying out in uh, really difficult circumstances because of partly because of the famine that's going on, but also because of what their own people are expecting on them. And I think that's the key issue that really makes him angry is that God's been really clear in his law about what um, is appropriate about, and it's all to do with charging interest. And so in Deuteronomy, it's really clear that you're allowed to charge interest to non-Israelites or non-Jews, but you're not allowed to do that for your brothers and sisters. And that the fact that God's law is being flouted and therefore the uh, surrounding people can look in and think, oh, you're no different than the rest of us, is what I think is a big cause of his anger. I guess coupled with compassion for these people that are really struggling and are being taken advantage of. Hmm. And in addition to that, they're also taking these children as slaves. And there are certain rules against that also in Deuteronomy and the they're not being followed. Yeah, you can almost hit in Naomi's exasperation, can't you, towards the end of that section where he's like, we already have enough going on outside of us. I cannot believe that you guys are doing this within us, between us. Like, what are you thinking? In the next chapter, he will not be distracted from building, but this does warrant his stopping work for a while because it's so serious. And so I think the contrast with the next chapter is really stark that it really matters how God's people treat each other and almost like what's the point in having a wall around the edge if the problem's internal and so yeah I thought that was really helpful about how important it is that our relationships are right um, before we try and um, reach out or build a wall. Yeah there's almost two levels of shock here isn't there there's shock the fact that children are being sold but then the second shock is who is buying them you know, it's, it's, yeah, it's a double whammy. I think it raises some interesting questions. Like this is what the rich Israelites were choosing to spend their money on was people, you know, but there's still the work of the wall ongoing. Interesting um, financial and spiritual uh, decisions being made there, I think. Uh, you know, what you're spending your money on does tend to reflect what is going on in your heart. I think Jesus said something about that, didn't he? Like where your money is, there your heart will be also where your treasure is where your heart will be also here we go this podcast is sponsored by seeds family worship new vocalist helen shepherd if medicine doesn't work out seeds she's your girl (laughs) you know the sad thing is that is totally the case i would be totally on board (laughs) (laughs) anyway uh, we digress. Uh, okay, so we've looked a little bit at that that section there. And then what do you think about Nehemiah's response in verses 7 to 11? Yeah, so he, he begins by, you know, taking time to think about what the situation is. And so he doesn't act straight away in anger. And because uh, the verse in, in verse 6, he, you know, it shows how angry he is. But actually he steps back and he thinks clearly about what to do and how to speak to different people. Um, And he begins by rebuking the nobles and the rulers and, you know, basically reminds them that they've 
been they've just come out of exile and then now you're buying you know he's showing them the irony and what they're doing and saying you know they have just been um and you're bringing them back into slavery their own people and so yeah he speaks truth to them and um rebukes them that combination was super challenging to me so first of all He's righteously angry and he he's right to be angry. So I guess that cuts out maybe 99% of my anger because it's not righteous. But then even though he's, he is right to be angry, he waits, doesn't he? And um, considers and, and then he actually moves towards them and is direct in his accusation. And for me, if I, if I get the first thing right and I'm prepared to consider I often then just don't address it. And so I'll just brush it under the carpet. But it's so helpful that he takes the time to consider and then he moves towards them directly and brings the challenge that's needed. And oh, that it's so hard to do both those things, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's my temptation is to to take time to consider, but then just be like, oh, let's avoid the issue completely. It'll just fade away. You know, it's that ability to take the time and then speak truth to power and he also went through official legal channels like it was like a three-pronged approach almost wasn't it he took time he addressed them directly but he also took them through official legal channels it was like I'm trying to you know maintain relationship here but you also have to deal with the consequences of your actions the other thing I found interesting is the thing that you had uh, is verse nine you know where Nehemiah says the thing that you are doing is not good ought you not to walk in the fear of our God? So, you know, it was just really highlighting to them that yes, you have caused problems for your fellow man, but actually what you've done is you've shamed God by your actions. That must have been quite hard, I think, for them to hear. I don't know what you guys think. Yeah, and the whole thrust of the Old Testament, wasn't it, and of Israel and of God setting his love on one nation was for them to be different and to be set apart. And they're they're just not doing that, are they? And so they're being they're, they're being taunted by the nations around them because they've lost their distinctiveness. The thing in verse 10 about this, um, this exacting of interest, I mean, you talked about it a little bit, but I mean, the Bible broadly says, doesn't it, that if people need money to live, they should be given it. <laughs> Um, and not loaned with interest and I just I read this and I just read this really helpful quote it said in hard times legal rights to say nothing of legal wrongs can deal mortal blows and I just thought these poor people they're in the midst of famine and the rich are taking them further down even though they like technically legally the law of the land they could take it They've really, they've really taken them down even further through exacting this interest, which is only of interest to the rich and not the poor. And I, I don't know, I don't currently live in the UK at the moment, but sometimes I feel like it's very pertinent for what is going on um, somehow in some parts of the UK, certainly. I mean, it goes on all around the world, but I just thought it was a picture of how the Bible is relevant and can speak to situations no matter the time or the place. Our relationships within the body need to be different than our relationships outside the body. And what a witness that is to the world around us. When there's no, If there was no poor person amongst us at church, then that's such a strong and powerful 
yeah, holding God's glory up on display, isn't it? Sorry, Julia. Okay, and then in um, <clears throat> excuse me, in verse twelve, the Israelites agree to do as Nehemiah says. And in verse 13, Nehemiah then does something slightly odd. Could you guys explain that for us? So he, he demonstrates something with his clothing, followed by a curse. So um, he says, so may God shake out each man from his house and from his property who does not perform this promise. And, and then each person responds and says, Amen. So that they are happy to take out, to take the consequences of this curse if it, if they do not follow through with uh, restoring what they have done and um, holding to their promise. And so it's quite a, it's a, it's a very solemn way of showing a commitment to some form of action and. Um, so the yeah the priests demonstrated that with him i feel like these verses could be really helpfully used when you're talking about accountability with people because first of all there's confession from the people isn't there and then he gets them up on the stage to make a promise that they're going to keep to what they've said and then there's this i guess this would be slightly harder to use in today's day and age but this sort of dance with his clothes waving around um and I guess that's a three-pronged way to publicly say and that they're committed to doing this. And I just think when you're trying to break hard sin patterns or you're trying to make yourself accountable to people, those are really good things, aren't they? The sort of confession, promise, and then a public declaration and an understanding of the consequences if you don't um, do what you've agreed. I feel like some, some teenage youth worker needs to use these verses to talk about how to um, develop accountability with teenagers. Yeah, because it's a public record of assured accountability. It's not just that they'll say it, but it's a visual sign that actually they're going to do it. I might ask Alex to perfect some dance with his clothes. I was going to suggest, Jill, that you do it with your boys and then feed back to us with how it goes. Yeah, okay, next week we'll feed back on that. <laughs> Great. Uh, and on that bombshell, let's move on to the next little section, verses 14 to 19. Um, yeah, this was interesting, wasn't it, about uh, we see Nehemiah's generosity. But what else do we learn about Nehemiah and um, those that came before him and what does he do and why? So is this the first time we hear that he's actually a governor? Um, I think we didn't know that previously in the in this uh, book or in Ezra. So um, we hear that he's a governor, and actually he's he compares himself to other governors that have come before him, and he shows that he hasn't. Um, got more out from his governoring than he could have done. And actually he cares for the people and has, he recognizes that the rest of the Jewish community are in need at this time and actually are, are living on less. And so he's happy to also be like them. Yeah, it seems a bit like he humbles himself, doesn't he? And he says no 
to um, privilege that is his, like we were talking about earlier, rights. He is entitled to this extra money and this privilege, but he denies himself for the good of the people. I, I wonder if there's a li- this is a little picture of Jesus for us here in the way that he does that. Um, yeah. So, and especially the way that then he sets a table and gathers the nations around his table and the generosity is all Nehemiah's. He pays the price to gather the nations to himself. And mm. yeah, that's a beautiful picture of Jesus, isn't it? Yeah, like Nehemiah, he didn't take what he could have taken. Just like Jesus, you know, he he could have had everything. Um, and because of his faith in God, Nehemiah didn't take it. And he, But he was within that, he was also extremely generous with what he did have. And he, he didn't take advantage of others' needs. And he, he never expected more of his followers than he expected for himself. So not only is it a great picture of Jesus, it's also, I think, a little picture of how we are called to live as Christians. Mm. you know not judge don't judge because otherwise you're going to be judged by the same yardstick you know all these all these things are laid out in this little this little five verse section Mm. and I like it when he you know that he says he does it because he fears God you know it's not like he's doing it to impress people or to show them that like he's a really great governor but actually he's doing it because he well, like fears is reverent towards God and understands that everything, I guess everything belongs to him and uh, God is, yeah, just the greatest power and has all the money, I guess, and everything. Yeah, and I, I think just to quickly address verse 19, what do you get? So we just said, didn't we, that Nehemiah is all about the fear of God and his focus is God, but then he, at verse 19, he, he seemed, you know, it could be read as quite an arrogant thing to have written or to have said. How does that tie in with what we've just said about Nehemiah, that little verse there? So there's some understanding, isn't it, that this is sort of part of his personal journal. And I guess we see here him, because I guess, honestly, it's hard to live that way, isn't it? It's hard to be generous, to not, to take less of a wage than you're um, entitled to. But I guess it's his, we see his motivation here, doesn't it? And he's appealing to God to keep um, remembering and reminding him that he's doing this for the good of others. So I read that more of like a personal prayer. God, please keep my heart in this. Keep me doing this for the right reasons and how he needs God's help to be able to live that way. And he's demonstrating sincere faith towards God. Like he's praying to God. He's saying, remember me, my God. And he's also very aware that like I guess God knows our hearts doesn't he and so it's it's hard to say that if you know God would know if that's a true or a false statement and so it's it's yeah it's telling that he that those words are there and also yeah it seems like he matches those in his character and what he does yeah no I think we learned so much about Nehemiah's character here I learned, I read a great quote that said that Nehemiah exemplified the fulfillment of the two great commandments, like following the two greatest commandments, but he never separated himself from his people. He owned their sin as well as his own, and he continued to be one of them. And I think that is really helpful for us to to keep an eye on as we think about living holy lives. 
Okay, let's move on then to chapter six. Uh, could someone give us a quick refresher on, I think we've talked about it briefly, but Sambalat, Tobiah and Geshem, who they are and what do they do? And uh, how does Nehemiah respond? They're the baddies. <laughs> Is that technically? Do, do you want to give us more detail about who they really are? They're just like the pantomime baddies in my mind. Yeah, <laughs> yeah they are so... the baddies, aren't they? Yeah. <laughs> Sanballat is a Horonite and he is the governor of Samaria. And then Tobiah is an Ammonite and he is an official of Samaria. And I'm not too sure about Geshem actually. I didn't I just read that Geshem's one of the, one of their buddies. Okay. Like he was he was a big cheese in one of the Arabian tribes at the time and he's one of their one of their mates. They were governors of Samaria, but they wanted control over Judah as well. And how, how do they try to do that? Well, Jumpy told me this morning at breakfast that this is the only chapter in Nehemiah that he's ever preached on. And he just was giggling to himself that um, they try and get um, Nehemiah to go to Oh No. And he says to them, Oh No. That was Jumpy's like, <laughs> he's like, Oh, I think I preached on this 15 years ago. And this is what I remember. I was like, Oh, the, the dad oh, joke no. that sticks with you. I was like, Thanks for that. That's going to really help me this morning. So, but that's their first strategy. They try and lure him away from the work and tell him they've got a really big, important meeting to have with him in, in the plains of Ono. And he says, oh, no. Well, he sends messengers back, doesn't he, saying, oh, I'm really busy. Sorry. And then they keep doing this, like, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Four times they do it. And then... And Honestly, the they first... are the pantomime baddies. He's like, oh no. They're like, oh yes. He's like, oh no. They're like, oh yes. It goes on like four times. And then, but then the fifth time, they like accuse, start accusing um, Nehemiah and say, saying, you know, he's trying. He's obviously trying to become king. Um, and Nehemiah says, uh, no, I'm not. <laughs> Stop inventing oh, things. Oh, no, I'm not. And they say, oh, yes, you are. Oh, yes, you are. <laughs> oh, my word. <laughs> so why do you... They do this thing, don't they? They do. They, they send these accusations in an open letter. So why do they do that? Because they well. want everybody to read it along the way. You know, it's not, a, it's not private. It's almost like gossip, isn't it? It's like the old-fashioned way of gossiping. They write it out so that all the people that carry the message hear their accusations as well. So it's like they take out um, an article in the newspaper about him with lies and slander. Oh, it's, that's quite modern. That's quite like what Prince Harry's trying to fight against right now. No, no. First we look at the passage, then we reach the application. Thank you. Thank you, Hermione. Uh, yeah, there's quite a lot of desperation, I thought, in this letter. Mm. Like you could tell that things, it was almost like the four times um, that they wrote to him privately, it was like this spiral. And then the the final time, it's this open letter because mm. Samala is just becoming so angry and desperate. And in verse seven, then, when he says, and now the king will hear of these reports, it's like this, this threat, you know, I'm going to tell the king and you're going to be in trouble. Mm. And it's a whole load of, like what Nehemiah says, it's, he confronts it as it is, like you're inventing these things. Because even in the letter that, in the letter that they've written, they're like, it's been reported amongst, among the nations. Um, 
you know, so like these people say, and those people say, and according to these rumors. So they're obviously making up these rumors and trying to turn it into um, stuff that's spread amongst the nations um, to to push Nehemiah into fear and to, um, yeah, that's how he, he says they're trying to like make them fearful. It's really, I know you mentioned this earlier, Juliet, but just all through these two chapters, there's this um, theme, isn't it, of uh, Nehemiah fears the Lord, not anybody else. And you see that really coming together here, that they're aiming to frighten him, but they can't Mm. because his fear is well-placed in the Lord. And yeah, it really struck me because fear of the Lord's all the way through the scripture, isn't it? But it's sometimes quite hard to think about or work out. But it, I just saw so clearly in this passage that it displaces other fears, doesn't it? If we're fearing the Lord, then there isn't space in our heart to fear slander or um, distraction or, yeah, anything else. Because all our fear is focused on doing the right thing before the face of God. And you see that mm. really clearly here. And he almost, it's, he laughs, doesn't he? Like, you're just making it up. He's so direct in his rebuttal. You know, rather than, oh, maybe, have I done something wrong? He's like, stop it, you're wrong. And his response is so beautiful, isn't it? Because he says, you're wrong, and then says that they're trying to make us afraid. So he confronts what they're, you know, he just says, they are trying to create us to fear. And then straight away he prays, like, therefore, oh God, strengthen my hands. And, yeah, it's just, again him focusing on that God would fear and reverence. Yeah, he, he very clearly here, doesn't he, chooses fear of the Lord over fear of man um, and asks for strength to continue to fight it. Because I think it's that thing that we talked about last week in some ways. You know, there's there's one thing to say, okay, I'm not I'm going to choose to do this to not fear, but then it's the action after that that um decision okay I'm, I'm not just going to say this thing but i'm going to ensure that i enact it god help me to enact what i'm choosing to say i believe mm. and by saying it he shows that actually he's he can be prone to be led to fear the enemies around them and their slander so he's recognizing actually in his own strength he's probably struggles to fight them that he needs not his own power or his own strength but he he's he's relying on god's help to strengthen him Mm. and it's the other thing that's interesting in verse nine is that you know that he says they all wanted to frighten us thinking that their hands will drop from the work and then he says and then nehemiah prays oh god strengthen my hands so it's not that nehemiah is saying you know i'm i'm completely not frightened maybe there was some fright he was a little bit afraid even though he's choosing as much as possible to have to to focus on his fear of the lord but he's still saying strengthen my hands not necessarily strengthen my mind but just yeah it's I, it was just something that i had seen like i i the fear might still be there but help me continue doing the work then we move on to this section um from verse 10 so who was Shemaiah 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 I want to say it's Shemaiah because it's like Isaiah 
And if I say it's Shemaya, I have to give in to all my American friends who say that it's Isaiah. So out hold of sheer line, determination. Yeah, you hold your line. Out of sheer determination, I'm going to say it's Shemaya. Who was Shemaya and what was the issue with what he suggested? Is I'm not, I need to be corrected here, Hermione, both of you. I'll come off my pantomime horse now. Is he, is he one of, is he an Israelite that has been corrupted and led astray by the baddies or not? That was my reading of it. So I, I basically read that he, that um, Shemaiah might have been a, a priest or he might have been a prophet. So I'm presuming because there's a possibility that he was a priest, that he was therefore an Israelite. But I, it didn't occur to me to think that he was not an Israelite. Yeah, no, I definitely read that he was an Israelite. And then, um, yeah. And then later on, Nehemiah says that he's been hired by Tobiah and Sanballat. So he's like he's been he's been turned, hasn't he, as a spy for the baddies? Are we happy with that type yeah. of thinking? Yeah. I think that's that's probably I, I hesitate to say I think that's probably it because who are we? But um that's how I have read it, and I think that's how the commentaries I read read it. And so what is it that he does exactly? So he tells um Nehemiah to come to the house of God or the temple um, because he needs to hide there because people are going to come and kill him. Um, and then he feels that this is a big problem because somehow he perceives that God hadn't sent him at all because he doesn't want to be fearful. And he feels, uh, yeah, I, I don't know how he, I guess it's the spirit prompting him that this guy has been um, is not telling the truth. Yeah, he just doesn't go ahead with what he says. And, he actually, oh, and he actually says, like, he, if he should be afraid and act that way and sin. And so clearly he thinks that it'd be a sinful thing for him to do to do that. Yeah, I read it that he's inviting him into a part of the temple that Nehemiah is not allowed to go into. And so again, Nehemiah is really clear on what the law of the Lord is. And this part of the temple that he's been invited to hide in isn't a place for him to be. And so he almost can use what he knows of God's law to refuse to do it. But then I agree, Julia, he has, it's almost like he gets some discernment that this is a plot um, against him. I thought it was interesting. I, th I wondered if the thing that was a bit suspect to Nehemiah was the fact that it says in verse 10 um, that Shemaiah was confined to his home, but then he says, let us meet together in the temple. So he can't leave his home. Isaiah has to come to him. Oh, but he can leave his home to meet him in the temple. What, you know, what, what is that about? I don't know. I just thought that was a bit. Good detailed dodged. reading of the text, Hermione. Well done. No flies on you. Soz. I just anyway I'm not sure if that's right but yeah I I agree with you Jill that I think it's that um you know there's precedent here isn't there then um uh 2 Chronicles 26 King Uzziah goes into the temple into a part that he shouldn't have gone to and he got struck down with leprosy for it 
And so I think Nehemiah here is basically recognizing that he is being invited into a part of the temple that he is not allowed to go to. And it's almost like a um, something I read said, this guy is seeking to persuade Nehemiah into an easygoing, compromising religion. Oh, God will let me do this because I'm his person and I'm trying to build the wall and I'm trying to keep myself safe. Um, so, yeah, a compromising religion that will shirk persecution and that will carry no cross and that is governed by fear of the opinions of other people. That's the the quote I read about this little section. I thought it was really helpful. Um, you know, he's not he's not. He knows that persecution is not going to be easy, but he knows that the compromise of hiding in the temple is worse. Let's quickly look at um, verse 14. When we as Christians, we often talk a lot, don't we, about forgiveness and um, letting go and having grace for others. So verse 14, which says, remember Tobiah and Sambalat, oh, my God, according to these things that they did. And also the prophetess Nodiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid so that can jar against what we're often taught as Christians how does this um verse actually not contradict what we are taught as Christians and uh what does it show us about Nehemiah well I think instead of lashing out like he could have lashed out against Shemaiah and these fellow you know he's giving false prophecy and um and instead he commits them to god <laughs> and um yeah just acknowledges that god's actually in control and god will have justice and yeah so he trusts that the justice will come from god rather than just from himself yeah it's encouraging isn't it and challenging because he's got a bigger view of god's justice and god's ability to do the right thing than he does his own and that's helpful to remember isn't it that so often we trust ourselves to sort things out whereas he knows that god sees hearts the way that he doesn't and he can entrust them into god's care for justice yeah great so in verse 15 the wall is finally finished um how do the other nations react and even some of the Jewish nobles. I was really struck that if this was today, then there'd be a big ceremony bigging up Nehemiah, wouldn't there? And look what a great job Nehemiah's done. And he's the man for this job and nobody else could have got it done in this amount of time. But here, the right response is they could all see that this has been accomplished because of the help of God. And so there's a genuine, um, we're grateful to God that this work has been completed rather than, Nehemiah, you're the man. Yeah, and then the nations around him uh, react to the this job being done as well. And they are disheartened. And they also, he also writes that they perceive that this work was done by our God. And so actually they recognize that, you know, it's only possible by God's hands to have completed this work. Something I read I thought it it was a triumph of concentration amidst so many distractions. Like it's amazing, isn't it, that they got the work done in that in such a few number of days when he's he's having to manage all these letters and ridiculousness, but he's so focused, isn't he, on the job that God has set before him. 
And I also read like that the enemy is only disheartened when God does the work. Like if it's just man like completing a task, the enemy just laughs at that because they're not, you know, putting their trust, doing it by God's strength. But actually they're like, if it, God does this, then they are disheartened. Great. Thanks, ladies. Just to finish up, um, I have we've talked a little bit about how we can see Jesus in these passages, but do you have anything else to add where we can see glimpses of Jesus here? Well, in the, um, the prophet giving false testimony um, against Nehemiah, Jesus was also amongst priests and people of uh, the law and people that said they were serving God, but actually they, they slandered him and they um, wanted to kill him and he didn't enact justice on them and brought it and trusted his father in heaven. So I feel like, yeah, that interaction between Nehemiah and uh, the false prophet is a small, yeah, just a small pointer towards later what Jesus faces. And even the betrayals from within, you know, Jesus was betrayed not just from the priests and the religious establishment, but ultimately his betrayal came from one of his closest friends, didn't it? And I think we see that picture here as well, that Nehemiah is being attacked and backstabbed and betrayed by Jews as well as by the surrounding nations. Um, And yet, yeah, just like Jesus in the garden, it was the father's will that was what motivated him to keep going. So the fear of the Lord is what keeps him, Nehemiah, like raise a sharp focus on task. Yeah, the other thing that I saw was that when, um, you know, when Nehemiah is offered shelter in the temple, when threats are made against him, and that was, you know, a potential easy way out that Jesus was also offered an easy way out of his suffering when he spent 40, 40 days in the desert, um, in the wilderness. Um, Satan said to him, you know, you just need to worship me and then all of this will be yours. It was quite an easy way out just to bend your knees before someone um, and you get you you're released from your suffering. Um, and he cho- he didn't do it. He he um, he chose the harder thing uh, because it wasn't right um, in God's eyes. So I think um, I think the thing that I enjoyed and the reason why I asked that question is that actually it Jesus's name isn't mentioned here, not even the word sort of Messiah or anything like that. But the Bible shows us little glimpses of, of him through using his people and through things that happen. Um, and that that is really encouraging to us because then we can see Jesus throughout the whole of the Bible and not just in the New Testament and not where a Messiah is explicitly um, talked of. So anything um, for you personally, ladies, to draw from this passage? I think my prayer on the back of this passage would be that the fear of the Lord is the sort of um, dominant motive of my life because so often it's other people's opinion, the fear of man, but you just see so many different times in these two chapters how the yeah. fear of the Lord guards his heart, doesn't it, and guides his heart in the right way. So, yeah, that's the thing I guess I'm going to be grateful for more this week. 
Sorry, I think we haven't said, but Julia is currently in a hotel lobby. Um, which is partly recording. outside, which is partly, it's like a, an open to the outside lobby. So we do apologize for the sound effects. <laughs> Julia, anything for you? Yeah, I think I was also um, encouraged just to, and rebuke, um, because I so easily fear other things. Um, we've come out of our country where we're very fearful of, um, or it's easy to be fearful of um, the political power over us. And um, just, yeah, the dangers that can come. And, but just recognizing actually God is, sovereign over that and in control and more powerful <laughs> and yeah i was just really encouraged just to be reminded to remember that yeah i just need to keep reminding myself who we're friends with <laughs> and our, you know our friend is the king of heaven <laughs> the king of heaven and earth and yeah, that's what Jesus said when he left the disciples, isn't it? All authority has been given to me, so go and make disciples. And so I feel like just reminding myself that Jesus has all authority and just helping to, um, yeah, just remember my, remind myself that he's on the throne and he's very much cares about justice and very much cares about um, people being called to himself as well. <laughs> For me, I think it was um, the importance of remaining prayerful and watchful. Even, you know, the, the wall is finished um, in verse 15, but actually, in we didn't talk about this very much, but verses 17 to 19, actually the persecution and the opposition continues and so they continue to have to be prayerful and watchful. And so I think sometimes I'm tempted to be prayerful and watchful when I can see something big coming up and, you know, the main event happens and then I'm like, oh, okay, now I can relax. But actually opposition to our message and is always there. And sometimes even after something major has happened, it can continue to increase. And so for me, it was just a reminder to remain prayerful and watchful at all times. Okay, great. Thanks, everybody. Uh, we will uh, speak to you again next week. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.